0: This week on Hangar Talk, AOPA continues to push for exemptions to FARs.
1: And general aviation pilots step up to the plate for coronavirus.
0: Also, the airlines, we know they're hurting.
1: What about Sun and Fun, the Air Race Classic, and other big events?
0: Finally, what you can do to stay sharp while you're quarantined.
1: Ian, are you ready to do some Hangar Talk during this coronavirus
0: pandemic? I would love to do some Hangar Talk, David. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. The 1056 turn right heading 130, contact final 132.4. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulis. This
1: is Hangar Talk.
0: All right, everybody, welcome to Hangar Talk. I'm Ian Twombly.
1: And I'm David
0: Tulis. David, our guest this week, it's a photographer to photographer session. You and our man, Chris Rose.
1: Yeah, Chris Rose was uh, was great. We had a nice, nice little conversation on a little bit of behind-the-scenes action that Chris uh, does to get things going, to show us those beautiful pictures in AOPA Pilot Magazine. And he also shares some tips on how other pilots can up their photography to the next level.
0: Okay, fantastic. So that'll be a good uh, a good diversion from everything else that's going on in the world. Starting with, let's talk about some stuff AOPA has been working hard on to maintain and access to the national airspace system and to make sure that people can continue to fly if they're able to in their local area. We talked last time about there's been a letter that we've sent making sure that there are exemptions to certain expirations. And so we got that with a medical certificate. And uh, now we're pushing for some others.
1: That's right, Ian. And the, uh, first and foremost would be the extension of the FAR Part 61 currency requirements. That includes things like flight reviews and instrument proficiency checks.
0: Yeah, that's important. I mean, we know lots of flight schools have shut down. It's really hard and, and could be potentially unsafe, depending on what sort of a risk category you're in to to do that sort of dual flying. So. Otherwise, you know, we're looking at flight instructor certificates, those expire every 24 months. A lot of people do those in person or go to the FISDO, which is not possible right now. So we're looking at exemptions for that.
1: And what about extending the knowledge exam ex- expiration periods? You know, these tests cost a couple hundred bucks. We talked about that a couple of Hangar Top podcasts ago. You don't want those to expire and then have to take them over again.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, and a lot of testing centers are closed. Also, DPEs, not as many of those flying right now, so extensions to that in the time frame that people have to complete their uh, check rides with DPEs.
1: And speaking of check rides, the uh, the 709 hundred that's one check ride I don't really want to have to do. Yeah, but, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> but uh, so we're, we're really looking at getting some relief on that. And the other thing, as a former aircraft owner, I would be looking for extensions for maintenance and continuing airworthiness requirements.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, uh, this is just some of the kind of the specifics, but the broad picture here is... You know, if you have something that's that you think is affecting you in terms of an FAR, a time limit, something that you just cannot get done, make sure you call AOPA, you call us, you email us and say, hey, what are you doing about this? What's the latest? Because, you know, we're taking all that information and presenting it directly to the FAA and saying these are really unusual times and, and people need some accommodations and we are pushing hard for those.
1: And our pilot information center folks are working remotely, but they are there for you, and they are the knowledge experts. So definitely give them a call and and get those questions answered.
0: Yep. Now, one thing that this story talks about that's online is is public benefit flying, and of course, even if you don't fly, like um, Angel Flight or uh, Pilots and Pause or something like that, a lot of it does go on, and and we think should continue. And one of the things, and David, I think you found this story that's just fascinating, is individual pilots who are not just carrying supplies to hospitals, but actually getting involved in having them manufacture. This is a really cool story.
1: Yeah. So folks who've watched this on AOPA Live or have read AOPA.org in the past couple of weeks We'll find out a little bit more about Michigan Seaplane flight school owner, Cran Jones, and a couple of pilots that, that work with him, Nick Hall and Mike Amato. Now, they are seaplane pilots from Michigan Seaplane, which is a flight school up in Pontiac. And so Cran had a friend in the automotive business, Ian, who was tooling down for some production. And Cran's idea was was like, hey, can you retool for a a face shield, for a medical face shield, if we can come up with the design. And so these guys up in Michigan came up, you know, with the prototype on their own, Ian, and with a piece of plexiglass and some painter's tape and some foam (laughs) and then showed it to a local, a local hospital. And the hospital gave him a thumbs up. And so then Cran called his his buddies at Mercex Corporation down in Indiana and by gosh, they ramped up. And at last time I talked to them, they had delivered more than 60,000 of these face shields, these medical face shields.
0: Whoa, that's amazing!
1: Now, they weren't using seaplanes, so it doesn't the 60,000 wouldn't fit in a Piper supercruiser, yeah, or anything like that. So th- <laughs> that's right, that, that's where uh, that's where Nick and Mike came into play. And they had a basically they had a nice, a nice Cessna which would fit a lot of that stuff in there, and so. They use that, and that's just the tip of the iceberg, as we like to say, you know, in the Cessna 206, you know, taking these medical equipment pieces from from Indiana to Michigan to hospitals, and that's just one do-good story out of a whole bunch.
0: Yeah, we've seen, I'd say just in the last week, really, a lot of GA manufacturers—so th- this, the reason I love your story is it's, it's two guys who wanted to do something and got into action, did all the work themselves, you know, in terms of coordination and the delivery, which I think is phenomenal— but the corporations, the companies, you know, they're starting to, starting to pick up a little bit. And Piper was was really early out of the gate there. Of course, they do, anybody who knows Piper, they do a lot of the component manufacturing themselves, which is unusual in GA. You know, usually it's like a Lego build. You know, it comes to the factory and the, the manufacturer just puts it together. But Piper actually does a lot of this stuff. So they had the ability to make face shields as well. And as I understand it, they went to the Cleveland Clinic Hospital there near Vero Beach and got that same thumbs up.
1: Exactly. You know, uh, Piper CEO Simon Cotticott, and he's been on the Hangar Talk podcast with us before. Mm-hmm. And so they um, basically came out of a morning meeting with the employees. They wanted to reach out and do whatever they could to help with this pandemic. And so Simon took a, a stroll around the. Uh, The factory floor and said, "Hey," in his British accent. You know, I wonder (laughs) if this uh, stamping machine could stamp out some plastic parts instead. You know, clear face shield parts instead of what we were using it for. And so they took nine employees and took them off the Piper airplane production line and got them to produce these clear plastic medical face shields with some foam, and and so they could protect the medical professionals that are treating coronavirus COVID-19 patients. And that's so important because. Because you can't get the germs on you if you're, a, if you're a doctor or a medical profession. Because when our first line of defense falls out, then who else do we have?
0: Yeah. Yeah exactly and this is i mean they they've made i think fifty thousand of these things so this is not just like a, hey feel good you know for a day everyone get together in the conference room and make a couple i mean th- this is a manufacturing operation that they've got going it's pretty impressive
1: wouldn't it be cool to have a, a medical shield with that with that piper logo, piper logo on that yeah.
0: Neat? yeah maybe they'll start selling them you know in the gift shop or something you know yeah,
1: and you did bring up a good point you know the partnership with the cleveland clinics uh, health system this is a, a system that has. 67,000 employees worldwide they've got facilities in i know in the states including ohio florida nevada as well as england uh, united arab emirates and canada so uh, those piper products will be distributed far and wide
0: yeah so you know ventilators we're hearing a lot in the news about ventilators and the in the lack of ventilators across the country and so you've heard some places stepping up i think gm is going to build now multiple thousands of them, but some aerospace manufacturers getting in on this as well, including Virgin. They've done kind of a cool maker sort of uh, prototype, haven't they?
1: So yes, Ian, Virgin Orbit came up with a design that they helped put together with some collaborators from the University of California, And the design is for what they're calling a bridge breathing ventilator system. It's for less expensive parts and and kind of a design that could be fixed on the fly, if you will, to help patients keep breathing. And it's not a heavy-duty ventilator that you see these giant machines. This is a smaller device that squeezes these uh, ventilation Bulbs, if you will, and helps um, helps patients get air into their lungs. And so, the California-based space company they went from making spaceship propulsion systems and satellites to making ventilator systems because there's such a shortage, you know, nationwide right now.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's so cool. And so, and I know you guys are going to publish a story shortly that's good, you know, lists so many others. Like we said, it just started to really ramp up. Tamarack, they make the winglets. They're doing uh, masks. I think uh, Textron's doing some stuff as well, I believe.
1: That's right. Textron is making some face shields. They're also uh, going to make some cotton masks and also full, full-length full clothing to help protect medical professionals. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Apario, they're the ones that make the Stratus, and then uh, they have actually a new EFB app out. They're really... A really interesting manufacturer, by the way. They make some really cool high-tech stuff that GA doesn't necessarily use, but is used elsewhere in aerospace. But anyway, they're working on some ventilators as well for the state of North Dakota, which is very cool. That is,
1: and we know that the, uh, that company from their ADSB traffic and weather receivers, mm-hmm. and also Avidon Auto. Nodine, which is a sister company to Avidine, they just just announced, basically, that they're going to use some 3D printers to crank out some face shields and ventilator masks also. And, uh, and and there's even more.
0: Yeah, you found CAE They're Of course, Simiflight, you know, they do simulator training. That's how we know them. But they also do some medical simulation training, and which has allowed them to, of course, they also build the simulators. It's allowed them to tilt really quickly and, and get into the medical device manufacturing.
1: That's true, Ian, and listen, before we leave that segment. Let's talk a little bit about the number one general aviation aircraft manufacturing company, Cirrus. They stepped up to the plate in a a big way too. And they are now pivoting to make some medical gear as well. Now, what I find interesting about this is that Cirrus in Duluth, Minnesota, partnered up with a couple other local companies. One local company, which is near and dear to my heart, is Aerostitch. And they make motorcycle, heavy duty motorcycle clothing
0: yeah nice rain suits and stuff Mm -hmm. yeah
1: yeah i've got one of those rain suits it's excellent so they're helping out with some of the machinery and also in duluth minnesota there's a cutting table that was put down by frost river frost river is not a brand that i've heard of before ian that they make soft goods and by that i mean they make backpacks for canoeing they make some clothing and they make some other materials and the other company i found doing a little research was that SCS Interiors. Now, that's an aircraft carpet and mat expert company. They make airplane interiors, and they're also helping cut some of these uh, plastic devices to make those, those clear face shields as well.
0: That's awesome. Very cool. So, and I'm sure we'll hear about many more in the future. So, Unfortunately, we got to go from, you know, feeling good about how GA is is helping out to the other side of the industry, which is the airlines and how much they are hurting. I'm sure that everybody knows an airline pilot or has talked to one who is worried about their job, about being furloughed, about what the future holds. And, you know, that's I I think that was reflected. There was a really good CNN story where uh, Oscar Munoz, this United CEO, says, you know, basically, yeah, it's it's we're going to recover, but things are not going to look the same as they did beforehand.
1: and that affects general aviation and pilots in the in the training pipeline too, but this fifty billion dollar aviation bailout. and in there, and you were telling me a little bit before the podcast that we're not sure if it's fifty or fifty eight billion. well, it's at least
0: some conflicting amounts. At yeah at least yep.
1: fifty billion dollars.
0: yep, yeah,
1: um, and how will that affect airlines? And they have parked, you know, hundreds of their. Aircraft on runways from Atlanta to you know the California desert, basically. Yeah. So that's a key thing. All these airlines are idling their airliners. Yeah. And that, of course, trickles down to lack of maintenance and GE making aircraft engines. They furloughed 50% of its engine manufacturing staff.
0: Yeah, and there's been all kinds of weird things that have gone on as a result. And and so, for example, uh, our Pilot Lounge series, which is a new video series that make sure to check out. It's on, on the uh, AOPA Live YouTube channel. And it's where some of us sit down with some folks we know, each other, whatever, just to kind of chat, you know, how's it going and talk about, you know, reminisce a little bit. It's just a, a way to just kind of, you know, pass the time a little bit and, and show that we're all uh, thinking about each other and, and, you know, working together. But one of those conversations was with Tom Haynes and um, Adrian Icorn, who is a pilot for a major airline, and he he had some really interesting, just, he's had some very interesting experiences over the past couple of weeks, I guess we'll say, in terms of passenger loads and what he's looking at for his future. So it's uh, it's a very interesting time.
1: It is. And actually taking the taking this uh, round circle uh, one more time, Mike Mato, uh, one of the pilots I talked to for the Michigan seaplane outreach effort and uh, making the space shields, I don't want to name the airline that he works for but he said you know there uh, 300 of their aircraft and this is about a week ago when i talked to him 300 of the aircraft were still flying 600 were parked he had a flight from point a to point b he ended up in in california he had 8 people 8 people on the aircraft
0: yeah. Yeah, and I just saw the TSA screened fewer than 100,000 passengers for the first time ever in its existence. So
1: Did I read earlier in the week that over in Paris that Orly Airport shut down at least for a day, they had 100 passengers, 100 passengers total in the terminal.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. But, you know, there's there's some glimmer, I think, and and I think that, you know, the the idea is and w- and what we keep hearing and I think it's really good advice is stay the course. You know, if you're in this the hiring in the airlines has always been cyclical and of course the airlines are you know they suck everybody else up so when the airlines hire obviously everybody else is hiring as well so we talk about the major airlines but it really that means that you know speaks broadly to all hiring but it is cyclical and it and it will come back and you know you you talked to the folks from JS firm and they had a little bit of insight in there, I think.
1: Right, right, indeed, Ian. So JS Firm is one of uh, AOPA's partners, and uh, we do have some jobs that are advertised uh, that are linked to their site, and they, they are an aviation specialty career firm, an online firm that only deals with aviation jobs, and they've been doing it for about 20 years. Now, I talk with uh, Abby Hutter, and Abby told me, Ian, that basically their traffic this year is up 32% over last year, their, their online traffic. They have 60,000 unique visitors to their uh, pages each day. Now, a unique visitor, for folks who aren't familiar with digital terms, that means you're visiting for the first time. And so JS firm also put out a, a kind of a new feature where you can park your resume. So if you go and look for a job, say you want to get a job with Skywest airlines. Well, Skywest West is, is not hiring right now. So that where it says, there's a little button that would normally say apply. Yeah. It's grayed out. There's a red button that basically says, leave your resume here. What you'll do is that you still upload your resume and we encourage people to dust off those resumes, get those cover letters ready. Upload that and because Abby said, listen, when things turn around again, and she said, in, and she thought about eight weeks, it would, it's going to be like a floodgate. Yeah. And the airline industry was still hurting for folks filling those ranks, you know? Yeah. So, Get those resumes dusted off and typed up and ready to go and upload them to, to the JS Firm site and other sites as well, Indeed and, and wherever.
0: Yeah, and I think the worst thing, you know, if you're if you're in flight school now and you're thinking, oh, my gosh, I was going for this airline career. It was sort of this, you know, this, this hot meal ticket. You know, it was my it was I was on my way. It's like, don't stop. And we've talked about this the past couple of, of shows, because that's the worst thing you can do. You got to keep you got to keep going. I, even if you can't fly right now, study. You know keep moving forward make plans for the next step because if you stop somebody else will keep going they'll take your place they'll get your seniority so yeah you you can't stop at this point i mean maybe you're gonna have to you know take on some other jobs part-time whatever at the time that's fine but don't stop training and and, and stop working towards that goal
1: that's right and don't forget ian and i talked to abby about this too you don't have to be just a pilot or a technician or, you know, even if you want to be a flight attendant, there are other things you could be, you can go into management, mm-hmm. you could go into computer uh, IT services, you can go into meteorology, yeah. there's unmanned aviation market that is just going gangbusters, even right now during the Coronavirus pandemic you know, unmanned aerial vehicles are being utilized in different ways. That's a great point. So now's a perfect time for folks who are not an unmanned pilot to go grab those study books, maybe hit ASA up or um <laughs> uh, Sporties or one of that one of our partners and and do some studying and maybe notch another, you know, something else under your belt, another certificate under your belt. I just got my UAV certificate and I'm pretty excited about that.
0: Nice. Nice. Yeah. Great advice. That's that's very true. Hey, real quickly, let's just go over some of the cancellations. We want to keep folks updated here. Unfortunately, the Air Race Classic, this is the all-women's Air Race that goes every year. This year, it was planned to go from, keep in mind, I just said was, um, (laughs) planned to go from North Dakota, Grand Forks, North Dakota, to Terre Haute, Indiana. That will not be happening this year, which is uh, very sad. It's been decades. I think 1974 was the last time they didn't hold the race there
1: yeah, and another, and actually, a couple of years ago, the race started out of Frederick, Maryland. Yeah. and it was really cool to be part of that.
0: It was cool.
1: And you know, these all uh, female crews trained for months in for this operation and this rally, and it's it's a real letdown. Well, we're sorry to hear about that. But listen, a big one that a lot of folks had on their mind was Sun and Fun. You know, that was to to start originally at the end of March and go through the first week in April. Then it was delayed to May. Well, it has been canceled now. And that's a blow to the Sun and Fun Aerospace Center and a lot of their educational programs because a lot of money comes out of that, you know, out, out of that gathering. But Sun and Fun has put some virtual flying up and there's some seminars, uh, up on their site. And so they have pledged to basically keep us occupied as well. And, uh, hopefully we'll, we'll see them again next year when they're going to double up on the sun and fun.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Also Elbase. this is one probably not a lot of folks attend, but it just kind of shows you what's going on globally. That's the show down in Brazil, the business aviation show. They say that one's going to be delayed. I have a hard time believing it because it's, you know, we're talking kind of time frame, but we will see, and of course, the other big one, summer is EAA, you know, Oshkosh Air Venture. So
1: Air Venture still
0: on. It still is still on.
1: on, and with a lot of celebrations too for aircraft. Some like the Stinson brand is going to celebrate a hundred years, and wow. and there's several aircraft firms that are celebrating seventy-five year and eighty-year anniversaries, things like that. But well, Ian, what do you think is going to happen with that?
0: You know, if I were a betting man, and you know, I don't want to start some sort of like uh, you know, people canceling their trips or something like that. My, if I had to bet on what's going to happen, I think they're going to cancel.
1: Well, one uh, one harbinger of bad news would be the fact that uh, the political conventions have been, you know, moved around a little bit too. And that's another gathering large gathering of people and personnel.
0: About the same time, yeah, About the, in, in Milwaukee.
1: Yeah, exactly about the same time. We want to point uh, folks to our good friend, Isabel Goyer, who wrote a, a little column about the fact that Isabel doesn't think it's going to happen because there won't be a vaccine by mid-July. And that might worry a lot of us. I mean, I'm an older person, I, you know, I'm a plus 60. And so, you know, that's a that's kind of a danger group right there. So there is maybe some some thought to that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I obviously we want it to happen. I mean, we want everybody loves Oshkosh. We all want to go and and we don't know what's going to happen yet. I don't think they know exactly what's going to happen. They are being, I would say, very transparent and forthcoming about it, which is great. Jack Pelton has said they've given kind of a time frame of when they have to decide and they've talked about some of the challenges there. But just being a realist, I wouldn't be surprised if they cancel. Yeah.
1: Well, their timeline is the uh, is the end of May, I think, to decide, the middle or the end of May, uh, because that's when things really get ramped up for EA Air Venture. So we'll have a couple of more Hangar Top podcasts to discuss this
0: Yes. and yes. find
1: out how things are going. So okay. uh, hopefully we'll have a thumbs up on that at some point.
0: Yeah. Hey, so staying engaged while you're on the ground, if you have a, a stay-at-home order in your state and you're not allowed to go to the airport, you want to stay engaged, obviously you're listening to the podcast, you can go online, watch videos, that kind of stuff. But some companies have been putting out webinars and like virtual seminars and other things. And so we just want to go through a couple of those because there's some really cool stuff out there. One that I'm looking forward to, I actually signed up for it because I use Garmin Pilot. Garmin has put together, I mean, it's a list of, I don't know, it's got to be 15 different webinars, probably more, probably 20 on everything from Garmin Pilot to sort of general pilot approach training. They've got the GFC 600, G3X, GTN stuff, all kinds of things. So these are free webinars. Go on. They're about an hour, and it's kind of like a virtual seminar, I guess, I am really looking forward to that. So yeah, check out Garmin for those.
1: And Garmin's big competitor in the uh, in that field is uh, is Forflight, and I'm a Forflight user myself. And Ian, you brought this to my attention that. Flight also has seminars that you can sign up for online. And there are a couple coming up right now as we record the Hangar Top podcast. Flight dispatch, optimize your planning and things like that. We got some 3D airports, uh, approaches and more. There a, was a little bit of, of how to use ForeFlight with flight simulators, which is pretty interesting. That's cool. And we both noted that the past virtual seminars are also posted online at FourFlight.com. So if you miss something in early April, you could pick it up in, in the next go-round. So take a look at ForeFlight to, to learn a little bit more about what you can do with that device.
0: Yeah, and so a lot of folks also are you know, a lot of people who are already producing videos and social media, you know, Jason Miller, Finer Points. He's doing stuff daily on Instagram, which is really cool. So you can check out some of his stuff. Again, he's uh, the Finer Points. He was on the show early on. Yeah, Jason Miller.
1: Yeah. And um, another good friend of ours, Jeff Simon, he, he he runs Social Flight. He started a new online chat area called Social Flight Live. And there are several topics that you could register for online. And He's going to run that for several more weeks. I think that's kind of a fun thing to do. And it could be a convenient way to to get your aviation fix in.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. There's also Mark Robito from uh, Pilot Workshops has talked about they uh, real world VFR. They've got some great stuff in a huge user base. So you probably already have heard about them. But if you haven't pilot workshops, uh, great content. They're offering a discount right now, which is nice and timely. So that's that's great.
1: And Glide Aviation partnered up with X-Plane 11 software developer, Laminar Research, and they've got an introductory version of the X-Plane Flight training course. Now that's through the end of June, but listen for podcast listeners who might be rusty pilots or folks who are listening that want to get into aviation, this might be a good time to jump on board with that. So take a look at the GLIME aviation website or look to AOPA.org and just do a quick search because we recently wrote about that.
0: Yeah. And then I, I'll say we should finish with a shameless plug, which is that uh, AOPA has been doing a lot of stuff as well. We talked about those pilot lounge videos. We've been doing Instagram live chats. I think you did one of those, maybe? I did.
1: I mean, it was yeah. a lot of fun.
0: <laughs> good, good. Yeah, we've got all kinds of stuff that we're trying to put out, and we're all working remotely. You know, we're all home doing some of this. You know, we're doing Skype videos and producing some stuff that we shot, you know, prior to the uh, to the quarantine. So definitely check out AOPA and, and definitely stay in touch with all the news because we're, uh, you guys, especially on that e-media side, man, you guys are hammering this stuff uh, daily.
1: Well, we appreciate that, Ian, and also, you know, just to remind our podcast listeners, we're there for you, and if you have any stories that you want to share with us, let us know, and we'll try to follow up the best we can with that while we're all hunkering down here and doing our social distancing maneuvers.
0: Yeah. So, hey, when things lift and uh, you go out and you do some flying, or if you're still flying. Chris Rose, AOPA photographer extraordinaire, has some tips on how you might capture some of those moments uh, and make them Instagram worthy yourself.
1: Welcome to Hangar Talk, Chris Rose, AOPA senior photographer. How's it going today? It's going great. All right, well, our Hangar Talk audience will probably recognize your name because of the many covers that you have made come to life for Flight Training Magazine and Pilot Magazine, not necessarily in that order. And we're going to find out a little bit more about how difficult it is to pull some of these jobs off and a little bit more about behind-the-scenes photography, aviation photography in particular. So, you know, my previous life, I was a photojournalist, so I understand and appreciate a lot of what it takes to go into one of these shoots. Just take us through a typical planning stage of a recent air-to-air photo shoot, and let's just talk about how many people are involved
2: and a little bit more about how we pulled it off. And we can pick any, any cover, well, you know, usually the planning stage, with any luck, starts. We typically try to start it, you know, maybe two weeks out from the time that it's actually going to occur. We, you know, start to think about what, what team members we want to uh, play a role in this and uh, what aircraft we're going to use. Obviously, we're trying to use aircraft that are well-matched. And uh, then we'll start to discuss the location and talk a little bit about, you know, what we're trying to capture and things like that. How many people are involved? Is it just you? Uh, no, you know, it's it, as far as the photography goes, it's usually just one of us. But uh, as far as the team goes, it can be anywhere from two to, to five people. You know? So
1: if you have two people, that would be just basically one person flying a photo ship, one person flying the subject airplane. Right, airplane. and then me in
2: the as the photographer in the sure. back, right.
1: But oftentimes there are uh, basically a photo ship pilot, a photo ship co-pilot, co-pilot or lookout right. yeah and that, that
2: person's going to basically act as a safety pilot safety so they're going to be looking out and usually operating the radios and then they'll also be sort of transferring what i say in the back because i don't have a push to talk in the back so they're going to be relaying what i say to the pilot of the subject aircraft. okay so um, taking
1: folks uh, it's kind of hard to visualize on on an audio podcast <laughs> yeah absolutely. but, uh, but so uh, a typical photo ship that we would use it could be a bonanza a36 it has a pretty big back back baggage area and we take the door off we take the the baggage door off you are strapped in i've actually borrowed your strap yeah before. We, tell me about being strapped in in the back of one of these airplanes and i did one of these jobs in like the middle of february and i froze my Tushy off.
2: Yeah, it's it can get pretty cold up there because I remember one of the first times I did this. We were I think we were photographing a, a cirrus over Harper's Ferry. It was like in it was like in March, but it was one of these really nice March days here in Frederick. You know, maybe sixty five degrees on the ground. We launched out of here, got up over Harper's Ferry, West Virginia, and uh, we were up probably around two or three thousand feet, and it was just freezing cold.
1: So that was a typical march day. Now, Harpers Ferry, for folks who aren't around here, that's only like 10, 15, maybe 20 miles away. So it's, yeah, it's really, really, really close. Far. Yeah, it's a landmark that we use as we're doing our training and our training area. So it's really close to home headquarters. Yeah.
2: So know, it could be 20 degrees colder. 20 degrees colder and, you know, 20 degrees colder over the course of, you know, you know 45 minutes or an hour that you're shooting. I, I, by the time I landed, uh, my hands were blue. Yeah, numb, <laughs> no doubt. teeth were chattering. No doubt. So I, I kind of learned a lesson on that. And from then then on, I always try to dress in layers, things that I can – it's better to take off layers if you get warm than try to put layers on when you're when you're cold, especially in the back of an airplane and you're trying to get the shoot done.
1: Actually, that's a good takeaway for podcast listeners who are thinking about some of the air-to-air. So let's get into some of the air-to-air, and we'll, then we'll go into some of your favorite photos. But let's talk about a typical air-to-air because I want folks to realize – now, this is not a very easy thing to do. It involves pre-flight planning sure. with uh, anywhere from, I'd say, three people to five, so five six, people, maybe six more. People, right. And that's even after it's been discussed among the editorial staff and among the folks who have the aircraft that we're going to center piece. Uh, that kind of thing. So we talked about the the photo ship where you have a, you and a pilot and basically a safety lookout. yeah now what about the subject aircraft? that also usually has more than one pilot unless it's a correct unless correct. it's a
2: you know an aircraft that is a single yeah so single pilot. so just to kind of kind of go back a couple steps here best case scenario we find out that something's going to be running in the magazine a couple of months in advance so we'll start to look for the subject airplane. We can draw on resources from our local pilot community. We can look outside of there. We have to make a decision. Is this something that we're going to do locally or we're going to travel to do it? If we're going to travel, then we need to think about the team that's going to be available at the location we're going to shoot it. And then we'll start to get all those people together, talk about the aircraft, talk about, you know, do we have any maintenance issues? Are there any, you know, is the airplane going in for an annual? Is it the comms work okay in it and everything else? Once we establish the subject airplane that we want to use then we'll start making arrangements to you know choose a day uh, usually sometime in the future hopefully in a good weather window that we can photograph it and then then we need to pick a a platform and you know usually if we shoot around here or it's it's a short trip we'll Use the A thirty six Bonanza that we have available here, but we also have a Cessna one eighty two with some we photo do, windows with photo windows cut right. in it, which is very nice because you can shoot out of both sides. In that, we've used that on numerous occasions, and
1: I've seen you shoot. I've seen you make photos out of an Air Cam, which I'm going to guess is like probably your favorite platform. Air Cam
2: is a great platform. Tell to people shoot what out of. what an Air Although, cam is. So an Air Cam is, I think it was originally developed as a project between Lockwood Aviation and the National Geographic Society. And they built sort of, it's sort of a purpose built photo platform. It uses twin Rotax pusher uh, engines. It's got fairly long, wide wings, so takeoff and landing in really short distances. It's almost like a twin-engine ultralight in some aspects, you know. But it's it, not a very fast airplane. It's not a very fast airplane. And, you, and where do you sit? You sit in the I front sit, or the back? You, I try to sit in the front. Uh-huh. Um, the back, you know, then, then of course, you sort of lose some of the advantages of using an air cam if you're in the back because you're shooting around the pilot. But if you're in the front, man, it is like shooting on – it is like a motorcycle going through the sky. And it is a great platform. It's a great platform for – shooting either air to ground or shooting that kind of that three quarter rear following shot it's not a great platform surprisingly to do sort of that power shot that that nose on kind of uh photograph because that yeah, sounds you can't like really a da- turn around in the seats well
1: that sounds like a dangerous thing to produce in the first place a nose on
2: yeah yeah i mean you know I, i've tried to turn around and shoot sort of behind me and it it doesn't work really well but as far as the that Again, that three-quarter rear shot or that when you switch leads and you actually have the air cam following the subject plane, it, it's hard to find a better platform than that. As, long as, as long as you're shooting at slow airplane.
1: <laughs> so what's the worst aircraft platform you've ever tried to make a picture out of?
2: Um, Gosh, you know, some of the picture. LSAs, especially, you know, it, a lot of people assume that like something like a Piper Cub would be good because you can put the doors up and shoot out of it, but again, it doesn't it doesn't work super well for shooting forward and it it's kind of tough to shoot behind you because you've got to kind of turn around in the seat. It's pretty narrow. Yeah, so it it's It hurts your back when you does, turn around it like does that. It does hurt your back. Yeah. And it also tends to put your knees and your shoulder out into the slipstream. So um, you know, the the huskies and the cubs and things like that aren't aren't my top choice. Although I will say one platform that I found worked really well as as a photo platform is the malls because they've got a big baggage door on the back and you can take that baggage door off and it makes a great photo platform. I
1: like that. Well, give us one tip for for photographing out of a Cessna 172. I know what that tip might be for me, but what can you do do to quickly modify a Cessna 172 or 182 for that matter? Yeah, so
2: the older 172s um, are nice because you've got access to the screw on the window. Um, You can open the window up. If you look, kind of walk towards the front of the window and look, you'll just see a Phillips head screw. You can take that out, and then once you get into the air, then the window will actually stay up in the slipstream. So you can push it up, or you can put a little bit of gaffing tape and tape it to the bottom of the wing. But it, it actually works pretty well for a photo platform. And the nice thing about Cessnas are that uh, you get to stay in the cabin. From a, so if you're shooting on a cold day, you can avoid some of the misery of shooting out of like a, a big open door or something like gotcha. that.
1: So now it's a, it's a team effort. And we talked a little bit about the aircraft, the pilots, your preparation, what, what goes into it ahead of time. Uh, folks who are listening are probably going to want to know, what kind of equipment do you use?
2: Okay, so as far as equipment goes, um, I try not to take any more than necessary in there with me. But right now I'm using the Canon platform. I know you're a Nikon shooter. I won't hold that against you. But, Thank you. Uh, yeah, so right now I'm using two uh, Canon 1DX Mark IIs also have a 5D that I take along with me for video every once in a while, but typically stick with the 1DXs. And then as far as lens goes, I try not to switch lenses in the plane when we're in the air. Uh, one, because you don't want to lose a lens out the door, God forbid. But more than that, you know, as soon as you take that lens off, there's so much dust blowing around in there that you'll be cleaning your sensor for weeks afterwards. So, so swap cameras instead of swapping lenses. So swapping lenses. cameras instead of lenses is kind of the the recipe there. So I'll typically mount one body with the Canon 24 to 105. That's an F4 lens and then the 70 to 200 uh, 2.8, and both of those are image stabilized. So the lenses are
1: image stabilized, and you have. Uh, now, sometimes I, you might use a filter, a particular type I of am, filter. I am.
2: So I'm using a. Typically, I'll use a circular polarizer. And what does that do? So, a circular polarizer is going to cut down on some of the haze. It's going to sh- not, not really sharpen the photos, but it's going to create a little bit of contrast, uh, especially in the sky and things like that. Helps with some of the glare. Also, just knocks down some of the light that can, you know, speculars and things like that that are coming on. But now, how do you turn that, the, for folks who are
1: trying to visualize this on a podcast, and yeah. I was talking, so it's a filter that
2: has it, the front part exactly. turns it around turns. in a circle. It turns in a circle. So as you reposition the camera, either horizontally or vertically, you can you can turn that to try to get rid of some of the glares on windscreens. And, okay. So you can see like
1: through that. the windscreen and exactly. the pilot, exactly. the subject pilot. Okay. Cool. Deal. Now, headset. You talk about briefly about headsets. Now, how do you keep your headset f- from blowing off? Well,
2: you know, when I first started, I, I just was wearing a regular headset, and um, I think it was like a David Clark or something like that. And you know, after sticking my head out into the slipstream a couple of times and having the headset just completely knocked off me, I started using a flying helmet. You know,
1: like a soft helmet.
2: Like a soft helmet, exactly. Yeah. And uh, I can't remember who makes mine, but um, it keeps you
1: know, the earpucks just- ear in place.
2: It does. It, okay. keeps, it keeps that in place uh, so your headset doesn't get knocked off. Also provides a little bit of, you know, weather protection, keeps your ears from getting too cold. Or your, You luckily have a full head of hair. I do not. <laughs> so the flying helmet is a, a welcome relief to some of the chilly temperatures out there. Now, what about sunglasses? Are you wearing sunglasses? Well, you know, I try not to wear sunglasses because when I, when I look at the back of the camera, which I do from time to time just to make sure that our exposure is dialed in, I don't like to have sunglasses on. However, I did find a really cool pair of these glasses that are meant to – they're actually meant to be worn uh, with, like, headsets and things like that. So you attach two little Velcro circles on the side of the headset, and then you just Velcro these glasses basically onto the headset. And you can get those in clear. You can get them in you know, shaded varieties or yellow and things that like that. That is
1: interesting. I didn't know such yeah, thing Yeah, well. it works pretty well.
2: keeps, you yeah. know, the biggest problem I have back there with wind is that, you know, the wind gets in your eyes, your eyes start to tear up, and then next thing you know, you're trying to wipe your eyes because, you know, you're trying to see the camera to change settings and things like that. So it's nice to have a pair of goggles or something like that, like uh, motorcycle okay. goggles.
1: Now, now for folks who don't have access to, to Canon DSLR cameras, can they accomplish any kind of uh, air-to-air with any degree of quality, with an iPhone,
2: and, um, if, and if so, how? Well, yes. Yeah. So I, I I haven't used an iPhone a lot in the cockpit, other than to do some social media stuff. But there are some applications out there that will allow you to choose your shutter speed and things like that, which is one of the critical things to get that nice full prop arc. You know, you've got to get your shutter speed slow enough so that the propeller has a chance to move uh, each each blade of the propeller. You know, if it's two blade propeller, then that blade has to make a 180 degree arc to get a full 360 degree disc. So you have to be able to change your shutter speed to.
1: So let's get let's go go technical for a real quick minute. Uh, getting back to DSLRs, let's, yeah. let's ballpark the iPhone for a second. Okay. Back to a DSLR camera mm-hmm. and trying to get that beautiful prop arc, which is which is an amazing piece of art when it happens when right. the sun is perfect. Give our podcast listeners a generic rule of what kind of shutter speed they should use to start with to get something like that, whether they're air-to-air or on the ground.
2: Sure. Yeah. So typically on a two-bladed prop, which is a lot of what we do, I will start out at around an 80th of a second. And that 80th of a second usually will give me a full prop arc. I have taken it down to a sixtieth of a second, but that, get, that starts to get really hard to handhold. You're
1: out. bouncing around in an airplane. You,
2: you are bouncing around in the airplane. So you're always, you're always walking sort of a fine line between keeping that shutter speed fast enough to negate the, the bumps and, you know, just the fact that you've got two aircraft moving. You know, even though they may look very stable in the air, they're actually moving quite a lot.
1: Gotcha. So now a 500th of a second, go or no go?
2: Uh, 500 of a second would stop the prop. Yeah. So that's a no-go. So that, that would be a no-go. two um,
1: fiftieth of a second.
2: Two fiftieth of a second might be a go like on a four or a five-bladed prop. Oh. So the more blades, the faster you can have the shutter speed because uh-huh. the prop blades don't have to make as far of an arc to get that full disc. All right.
1: I know you might not be prepared for this. I'm throwing a All left field. All right, throw field. me. Throw from me a From the left field. field here, huh? From the curveball. Helicopters.
2: Man, helicopters are tough. They are really, really tough to shoot because even though that blade looks like it's moving really fast, it's not. It's moving much slower than the prop on an airplane. So I have, <laughs> I've gotten really crazy and dialed it down to like a 40th of a second to try to get a prop arc and, you know, try to take advantage of not only the image stabilization in the lens itself, but also using a an external gyroscopic stabilizer, which which we use that bolts onto the bottom of the camera. and. You know, if you shoot enough photos, you're you're bound to get maybe one or two that are sharp. But helicopters are just generally tough to shoot, and Very that's difficult. why Very that's difficult. why when you see photos of helicopters, most likely you've got some breaks in that rotor arc.
1: Yeah. So I'll tell you a funny story. One time when I was uh, doing one A, the the page one desk at the Atlanta Chronicle okay. Constitution, yep. it was during one of the one of the wars in the Mideast. East, and the AP had these dynamic photos of these. You know, military service people basically jumping, you know, on ropes, basically dangling out of these helicopters as they landed. But the prop blades of the helicopters were all stopped. Like the photographer shot them at a thousandth of a second, and they were just, you know, ready to. They didn't change anything. They didn't think anything about the situation. So I called AP New York on the phone and I said, "Hey, this is Dave T at the Atlanta Journal Constitution. Um, can you tell your photographers in Afghanistan to slow their shutter speeds down?" <laughs> And you could literally hear the phone hang up, you know, in yeah, my yeah. face. Yeah. Click. But, that, you know, but I knew that as, a, as an aviator, I knew that, look, you want to show a little bit of blur. And uh, now I have the greatest respect for military photographers and folks who are in that situation. But the point is you got to tailor the situation to what you're trying to do to tell the story. So we think about those things as aviators, and a lot of people don't. That's why I was asking you what shutter speed. Sure, would be yeah. At. I mean,
2: there's not very many full-time aviation photographers out there in the world to begin with, and there are even fewer full-time helicopter photographers. But the people that do it all the time, do it really well. When I see, you know, there's there's a magazine I think it's called Vertical um, out there, and man, their cover shots are just fantastic because you see that full. That full arc of the rotor blade. It and makes just, it exciting. I'm, it's I'm a beautiful, beautiful photo. I'm always amazed like, how do they get that.
1: Absolutely. So now, speaking of amazed at how we got some stuff, now we talked about equipment, we talked about assignments, we talked a little bit about, you know, getting in the right spot. One of the most difficult pictures that I think you put together happened during the total eclipse of 2017. <laughs> yeah. And I, yeah. I personally know that this is a very challenging photo that you made, and it was also an award-winning photo.
2: Yeah, so we... <laughs> Take us through that. Some, somehow we got the bright idea that we were going to do a story about how the general aviation community sort of participated in the total eclipse that happened back in... 2017. 2017. Seems like a longer time ago than that.
1: That was so good. The thing that was cool about it for me, because I wrote some stories and did a little bit of photography of you know on the ground, was that a lot of people rallied to general aviation airfields... They did to see the eclipse because of the open openness of the field. But also it allowed general aviation pilots to kind of move around the country to mm-hmm. figure out where they needed to be right. in their exact primo spot for a total eclipse of the sun. And this does did not happen very often. I mean, in our lifetime, we were fortunate to see this. So you put a lot of planning into knowing the exact time of day, the exact location where to go. And the aircraft and all of these elements. Right. So, take us so, through that step by
2: step. So, at some point, we're sitting in we're sitting in a planning meeting here at AOPA headquarters, and uh, we're talking about the eclipse. And you know, it's then then quickly the discussion sort of evolves or devolves, uh, depending on the case, into what kind of aircraft are we going to use? And I said, well, you know, there's an Eclipse jet. Why don't we shoot an Eclipse jet during the eclipse? And um, Everybody sort of bought into that idea, so we decided we were going to try to make that happen. We found an Eclipse jet. Where was the Eclipse jet? You know, that's a good question. I'm not exactly sure where it was based at. But we decided that the best place to shoot it would be Carbondale, Illinois. And that was going to be one of the hot spots for it eclipse was.
1: watchers because there were a lot of ground, a lot of a lot of events on the ground. Right, there right. already were going to be a lot
2: of people there because so, it had was one of the longest time frames right. of the eclipse. So exactly. we knew that our chances would probably be best served by doing it there. And we we were talking about a lot
1: of time for oh, an eclipse. Yeah. We're talking about no, we're only talking about two two, two, two minutes two minutes yeah, tops. for the total eclipse. Right. I mean, and you, you had part of the sun's disk, or you or you didn't.
2: You know, and it was the whole thing was like a minute and fifty eight seconds at the max. So we ended up going to Carbondale. Uh, we went in a Bonanza, which we ended up using as a photo platform. The eclipse met us there. We briefed it, and you know, after after some planning, as far as knowing exactly what we did know exactly what time the eclipse was going to be. So that was a big advantage. We launched uh, well in advance of that. Got set up. But we realized that, you know, we wanted to we wanted to continue to fly circles so that we could get the eclipse in the background. That yep. was that was the most important. So were you below the eclipse jet or above it? We were below it, okay. um, shooting up. Now the only thing different that I did this time was the fact that we actually used some strobes. And tell me about how do you,
1: I mean, a strobe for folks who are not pro photographers, a strobe has a distance. That of which, of which, beyond of which, it's, it's ineffective. Useless.
2: Right, exactly. So we we ended up mounting um, two five hundred watt second strobes in the door edge of the aircraft. They're battery powered, so we didn't have to worry about that. But we knew that we needed to be close enough to the jet for that strobe to be effective. So
1: most strobes are op- they're operating efficiencies like. Ten feet to 10 twenty feet, feet. Twenty feet. Max. We were a
2: little bit farther than that.
1: A lot farther than that. a lot farther <laughs> than that. Yeah. I mean, you got a jet and you got a bonanza. Now the bonanzas are pretty fast airplane, but the jet is
2: a jet. Is a know. jet. This and fast. W- what we quickly realized was it that, being the fact that we had to circle, so that we could get the eclipse in the background, it took us about three minutes to complete a full three hundred and sixty degrees. So knowing that the eclipse was only going to happen for less than three minutes, we knew we would get one shot at this. Gotcha. And, you know, through, uh, I guess, a lot of planning and and a lot of luck, we were able to line both the eclipse, the eclipse jet, and the Bonanza and make that, that one photo. You know, usually we come back with sometimes thousands of photos to look through. We didn't have that luxury this time. I think there were about three or four photos that we quickly just hammered out that had all the elements in it but it ended up being a really interesting shot and it's a shot that people don't see every day the strobes fired luckily we were able to light the bottom of the of the eclipse jet a little bit and then it's lit from the top by the eclipse itself
1: and it's for folks who haven't seen it in that it's a totally black sky the sun is you see the 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 aura of the sun, which is eclipsed by a disc, you know, it's a in really front of it. yeah, it is the a earth really earth odd, uh, odd yeah.
2: photo, and um, it was just a weird day. I mean, the feeling that you get it's it's weird. You know, people describe being on the ground during the eclipse as having just this, you know, this very sort of ethereal kind of feel to it, and it's even that 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 feeling is even stronger when you're in the air, and and uh, you know, all of a sudden it's it goes from being a bright sunny day to just being this very eerie dark but still kind of light thing going on it was it was it was strange
1: absolutely and that was back in august of 2017 and 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 i know that we ran the beautiful photo just a couple months later on the front of pilot magazine it was beautiful so folks could search for that um at aopa.org yeah i think the
2: article is called chasing the sun
1: yeah, it's 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 really really interesting, and I tell you what, it's I was impressed, and I was part of that coverage, and it was I can't believe that y'all pulled that off with an Eclipse 550 jet. Now, here I just found it online, August the 22nd. If someone Google's August 22nd AOPA, you'll have a behind-the-scenes look at how you and Dave Hirschman pulled that off, and it's pretty a, a pretty. Yeah, and that's another Sorry. important
2: thing that I probably haven't said nearly enough is that. You know, for me, I'm in the back. I, I have no control over, you know, where the position of the air. I mean, I can obviously, you know, once the airplane gets in a position, I can say, you know, up, you know, down, in, out, left, right kind of thing. But it's really the, the expertise of these pilots that are, that are piloting both the subject and the platform plane that, that make what I do, you know, so much easier. And
1: we should reiterate that the folks who are piloting the, either the subject aircraft or the photo ship, these are folks who are formation trained pilots. It's just not anyone that can go out and do this. No,
2: and I and, and occasionally I will get calls through our pilot information center. People will say, you know, hey, I'm I'm looking to get together with uh, some of my friends, and we want to do a photo shoot. And you know, is there a photographer there I can talk to? And sometimes they send it to me. And you know, I I always want to I I want to encourage people to go out there and take pictures and enjoy, uh, you know, enjoy aviation, take pictures so that you can. Share it with your friends and your family and get other people excited and enthused about it. But be you know, really be careful when you're doing air-to-air, you know, photo shoots. Even though it may it may look fairly simple, it, it isn't a simple process. There right. a lot goes into it and the people that are doing it are all have hundreds and hundreds of hours doing just formation photography.
1: And I might add there's a critical safety briefing beforehand. Yes, absolutely. A safety always, debriefing always. afterwards. Yes. And anyone at any time can call off the can shoot. Can call off the shoot,
2: and, uh, and that includes me. I mean, there's been times when we've started working with people, not not our formation pilots, but occasionally we have to work with, you know, owners and operators that don't have a lot of formation experience. Or, you know, maybe they're having an off day and something happens or just something doesn't feel right. And, you know, it's, I've, I've called off more than a couple photo shoots just because things just, just didn't feel right. Well, folks don't have
1: to have all kinds of complicated equipment to do air-to-airs. Well, they do for air-to-airs, but you don't need all kinds of complicated photo equipment to get dynamic pictures from the ground. No, no, not at all. I'm going to show you one. I'm going to refresh your memory. This was in the (laughs) the January uh, 2019. Flight Training Magazine cover. This is for folks who can't see this on the podcast, which no one can, obviously. But uh, uh, it's it's titled After Dark. It was about a story to illustrate night flying tips. But, Chris, you are out in the middle of nowhere, and this is a beautiful star. It has stars overhead, basically the Milky Way and it looks like in the foreground it looks like a piper super cub on floats maybe in the foreground
2: it is actually that is AOP President Mark Baker's super cub oh uh, i know they're that they're playing well is, i've flown that which a bit. is uh, his uh, one of his favorite aircraft and it is a beautiful aircraft and we were able to photograph that up I think that was that was a lake either on it was either near or on uh, Greenville Lake up in uh, kind of central Maine, I think.
1: OK, so there's a big seaplane fly in there. There is. There and is. so everyone thinks that what you're doing is just fun and games. You're you're sitting around the campfire, you know, toasted marshmallows and things That's like right. that. Uh, how no, hard it's... did you bust your butt on that trip? I know this is like constant work. I mean, heck, here's a photo you shot in the middle of the night.
2: Yeah, so we came back from dinner one night, and we were heading back to this uh, this cabin that we were staying at. We'd been flying the seaplanes all day doing a photo shoot. They were they were down on the beach, and came back and I looked up in the sky. And you know, we live in the Washington D.C. Baltimore area, so we get a lot of light pollution around here, and you never really see, you know, all the stars and that the Milky Way, you know, at night. But you could see it. It was a it was a clear clear as a bell kind of night, and all these stars started popping out. And I said, you know what, let's go down and. See if we can make a picture or two. I didn't even have a tripod with me. I ended up using a rock. Oh, my. To well, that, the camera. use
1: what's available to you. Use what's Absolutely. available to you.
2: So I'm kind of laying on this, like, rocky shore. I've got the, the camera propped up with a rock, and there were two pilots that were there with us. And I said, okay, guys, I want to get you guys in the foreground next to the airplane. Pretend like you're talking, but don't move a muscle <laughs> because we had to keep the shutter open for, like, I think it was maybe – 10 seconds or something like that to get that kind cameras
1: of, perched on a rock
2: cameras perched on a rock. So I made three or four photos. Didn't even look at the back of the camera. It just it was kind of like a Hail Mary pass. Got back to the cabin that night, looked at it and saw this photo and was just like, hey, that actually worked pretty well. I would love to go back and duplicate that photo. I'd love with to a pl- tripod another, with the tripod yeah, gotcha. with, you know, because now that I've done it once, uh, you know, there's there's I've seen other people do it a lot better. So I've tried to find some tips on doing that kind of uh, astrophotography with Uh, things in the foreground so I I feel like I might be able to get a little bit closer this time but uh, it's still a lot of fun to to do that. But
1: that's a good takeaway looking at camera angles and thinking about you know photography having something in the foreground like you're talking about in this photo is really
2: a key element. It is it lends perspective and it also it gives a certain lifestyle quality to it you know that's that's one of the things about you know just seeing airplanes flying in the air is nice but you know I like to see people interacting with the airplanes and because that's what it's really about. It's, it's, it's a lifestyle, it's fun, it's exciting, and you want to see people enjoying themselves.
1: I like that. Now, speaking of enjoying themselves, there's one uh, photo shoot that you did that I really, I mean, I like a lot of them. This is one that came to my mind. It was one of the coolest ones. It was with a drone. And you did a seaplane fly-off with an Aeropract... Oh, yeah. A22, right,
2: right. a rel- relative newcomer. That plane was actually parked right next to that Super Cub on oh, so the lake. Is during that same that was weekend. D- during the same weekend, yeah. Right, and a Super Cub.
1: So it was a Super Cub versus an LSA Aero Practice AEROPRAKT uh, A 22. Right. And so these are two completely different seaplanes, but I really liked your drone footage of that. Tell us a little bit about how you got involved with drone photography. And because that's so popular now, sure. and I, and what are just a couple of key takeaways? Maybe angles or
2: equipment, just whatever comes to mind. Well, the first, probably the first piece of advice is, you know, stay away from airports because okay. just, it's just kind of a kind of a pain to operate there. But we were lucky enough, you know, um, seaplanes are nice because you can get outside of the airport environment, so you don't have to worry about other traffic. And yeah, so we were up on this this lake in, in northern Maine, and we were doing a flyoff between these two aircraft, and we decided, you know, we were going to try to use the drone to get some shots. So we tried to do, we parked the airplane planes on the beach, we did some overhead shots, we shot some video of following the seaplanes on both takeoff and landing. Not real close, but close enough that you could get a sense of uh, what was going on and I enjoy using the drone, it's just sort of another arrow in the quiver. It's another tool. It is another tool. It's not something that I use all the time because it gets, you know, that that look... I I don't want to say it gets tired, but, you know, even, even with the advanced cameras that are on board these drones now, it still doesn't give you quite the same quality as a DSLR, so... But you, you use them you, but you can't, I mean, it, you could have had a
1: helicopter to do this. This That is a possibility. Yes, yes. But b- b- barring that, you're packing your DSLRs, you've got your iPhone, you've got a drone now. Right. Now, you've got a ton of stuff at this point.
2: Yeah. So, and in, in we don't, we usually travel, you know this, so I mean, we travel as light as we can. So, yeah, I've, I've got the drone with me now and... Again, I, you know, I don't use it, even sometimes when I take it, I don't necessarily use it, but I like to know that I've got it there as, a, as another perspective. Because helicopters, as, as most of you know, are very expensive to yeah. rent. Uh, and sometimes they're worth that. They're worth the expense. But uh, in a lot of cases, it's just as easy to launch a drone and get some overhead shots or, uh, you know, an, another perspective.
1: Gotcha. So give me one or two quick drone Tips like a pullback or a tracking photo, or like what do you try to do, or do you like that? Do you have the aircraft be the star, and the drone is just there to to kind of oversee like the eye in the sky? I mean, what's your thought process on using a drone? So I
2: think the overhead shot is kind of one that um, you know that that's a difficult one to get because you know even even you know with a ladder or a tripod you can usually get a sort of a higher angle. You can obviously get a lower angle, but that that direct down shot. It's usually a nice accompaniment to, to other photos in the shoot, and it also gives people sort of a, an idea of the environment where the aircraft is, is placed. So if it's on a beach, you see the whole, you know, beach scape. And you can go up, you know, 100 feet or so, and, you know, with the wide-angle nature of those cameras on board, you really see a lot of the environment.
1: So, so would you rather the subject airplanes move through the frame, or would you rather the drone move over
2: I like the drone. I like to keep the subjects stationary and move the drone over top of it. Okay, but, I like it. But you know, that's just that's me. Depends on the situation. Exactly. I, I was throwing you a curveball
1: from from right field on that one. I know, and, and I know that you are actually, uh, in all seriousness, you are one of the first, if not the first person at AOPA to get there their commercial drone certificate, which is known as a part 107 in the industry.
2: I probably use the drone more for video than I do for stills, honestly. And and that's something that I need to change about myself because I think there's a lot of great opportunities. You know, I just recently got one of the new Mavic 2 Pros, which has a, a much higher resolution camera on it than my original drone. So it's only now that I can start pulling stills off that drone that I feel like we can actually use for publication high, higher quality, a higher quality stills. Right. So I'm still, I'm still learning uh, each time I go out, you know, I, I find something sometimes it's just a happy mistake I make or I make a, a real mistake. And I think, you know what, that's something I won't do again, but
1: gotcha. It's a learning experience. It is a learning experience. Well, well, let's talk a little bit. Let's, let's sidestep a little bit. There's a couple of things that you've done recently that are very interesting folks in the pilot community might want to get involved more with missionary work and giving back. And you and uh, Julie Summers-Walker recently went down to uh, document some migrant farmers in rural Mexico. Now, this looked like it might have been a pretty tough assignment to do. I mean, the, the, the work situation was difficult. But you were documenting doctors and dentists and all providing care to folks in Mexico via... General Aviation. Tell me how GA got involved in that, and some of the highlights of that trip.
2: Well, this wasn't our first missionary trip. We've we've done we've done ones in Africa and Central America and and things like that. This one was kind of special to me just because you know it, it's so close to home. Really, it's uh, we we left Southern California, sort of the San Diego area, and headed south. We cleared customs in Ensenada, and then. We ended up going. I think it was about 75 miles south of Ensenada, which isn't really that far into Mexico, but it is a world away from Southern California. I can tell you that.
1: A generation away. I, I agree. It is,
2: and you know these people. Um, they're they're just they're wonderful people, but unfortunately they um, they're living in an area that doesn't have access to the kind of medical care and dental facilities that we have here in the states. So. Dentists, uh, doctors use GA aircraft. Some of them are pilots, some of them aren't, but they fly down on a monthly basis to provide medical care to some of these outlying communities, most of which are migrant farming communities. And having seen some some living conditions around the world, I can tell you that the living conditions that these people uh, are in down there are some of the worst that I've seen. Uh, it's it's really tough. So, obviously. GA is doing a lot of good down there and they're always looking for new volunteers to go down there and help them out. Folks are
1: not flying their Citation jets into this No, kind they're of not field. flying
2: the Citation jets. These these were uh, you know, typical kind of spam can sort of airplanes. Cessna 182, 182. 182s, uh, you know, Cherokee 6s, uh-huh. things Stuff like that. Stuff
1: that we have access to, we being you know, general aviation pilots. So it doesn't take a lot Of heavy iron to really make a difference.
2: Absolutely not. You know, dentistry is nice because outside of the chairs, I mean, most of the dental equipment down there is, it's fairly small. They've even got, uh, you know, like handheld x-ray machines and things like that. So they can get, you know, they typically designate one aircraft as kind of a, you know, a mule to carry down all of the equipment and supplies and things like that. And then the rest of the aircraft will just have personnel in them, so they kind of match that up once they get there. And I'll tell you, it was—it's uh, like watching a, you know, like a, a combat mash unit. Yeah, uh, that's, Once they get on scene, I would imagine. Sure. within about two hours, they are set up and providing care to these people. And
1: How did it make you feel when you, when you uh, were documenting that and then you got back to reflect on it as a, as a person? Well, it,
2: it makes me feel good that, you know, sometimes general aviation gets a bad rap. You know, they think it's just a bunch of rich people going out and, and having fun. But the truth is there are a lot of people out there that are using GA to do some really great things in the world. And these aren't people that are getting paid for their time. It's all volunteer. A lot of them are volunteering not only their own aircraft, but they're taking down medical supplies or just general comfort supplies themselves. But it's a group of really, really passionate aviators that are going down there and they're, they're living in relatively, uh, you know, sparse conditions. But their professions are there to help people. And I think that they see that in a very clear sense when you're down. Absolutely, you know.
1: so if, if folks want to get more involved, they can look at missionflight.org. They can also look for Chris Rose's and Julie Walker's article, um, December 1st, 2019, aopa.org. Uh It's called A Purpose to be a Pilot, which is a, a really good story on giving back. Let's go from Mexico okay. to Europe. Europe, okay. <laughs> right. hey. I want you to tell our uh, podcast listeners here on Hangar Talk a little bit about the event that happened this summer, when we're reflecting back on uh, Normandy, we're talking about D-Day, 75 years later, and you were a big part of this, and there was a lot of planning going into that. But, but tell me, take you know, walk us through a little bit about the you know some of the the 20 some odd C-47s and DC-3s, and paratroopers that were recreating this event over Duxford, England.
2: Right, so I wish I could say that I flew all the way over in in the uh, C forty sevens. I did not. We we flew commercial over to London and then traveled from there to Duxford, where all of the C forty sevens were based before they made the crossing. But you had made
1: relationships
2: with these pilots. Yeah, we've been talking with them, um, and uh, we were. It was still kind of up in the air as to whether or not we were going to be able to travel across the channel on on one of the aircraft. But we went over anyways, and. It was just such an inspiring story. First of all, the the museum uh, at Duxford is something that you really, you know, anybody that's got uh, a passion for aviation or especially military aviation really should try to get over there and see that museum. It is, it is amazing. But we had, you know, I don't, I don't have the final count of how many C-47s were over there, but it was more than I'd ever seen in one place before in my life, that's for sure.
1: Well, we were talking about, Ian and I were talking about this the other day on another uh, Hangar Talk podcast. I think about 15 came from the states and about 10 more from Europe and other parts. Yeah. And it was that was a pretty Along big with a Air Force. lot of other
2: military aircraft. Yeah,
1: right, was, right. It wasn't there. just C47s and dc things. Yeah, I mean That's there was point.
2: everything from some really obscure kind of aircraft, uh, yeah. European aircraft to, you know, P51s and Corsairs and things like that, but they were all staged over there. So, it was just really sort of a it was a memorial to a very sad time in our history, but it was also a, a festive atmosphere in the sense that People were out, uh, you know, kids were off school, everybody was out looking at these aircraft. The owners and, and the pilots were there to talk to people and answer questions. A lot of people were dressed up in period clothing, period vehicles. It was just a really, really amazing event to witness. And, and, and I just felt incredibly lucky to have the opportunity to go over there and, and capture it for, uh, for the magazine.
1: Now, coming up uh, in May of 2020, There's another event, the Arsenal of Democracy. So folks in the states don't have to travel to Europe, but it's going to come to us. Uh, There's going to be some overflights at Washington, D.C. Also, I heard that there will be some that are planned for Pearl Harbor. That hasn't come together yet, but that's in the planning stages. So do you have any plans to participate in that?
2: Well, um, I certainly think that I'll be involved to some degree uh, in the Arsenal Democracy flyover in D.C. I don't know about Hawaii. Uh, That would would be nice, but uh, we'll we'll see where that goes.
1: Okay, so Arsenal Democracy, mark your calendars for May 2020. Before we go, Chris, and we appreciate all your details and you've given us a great wealth of information on equipment and ideas and techniques on how to make things better. Let's talk a little bit about something that photographers look for first, which is the quality of light. I know you did a presentation on this recently. Give us, like, what's the best time of day that folks can, you know, think about